Welcome everyone to this special evening, this Monday, Thursday service. We've just finished, those of us that were able, a very special dinner here, uh, our lamb stew dinner, which is appropriate. It was a joy to see the fellowship shared around the tables and the conversation and the blessing that that was. But what we're looking at in our passage is this last Passover meal that Jesus, in fact, his last meal with his disciples. And the tone and the experience was very different for those disciples than what we experienced tonight. Let's just ask God to really help us capture that moment uh, with a fresh uh, insight. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice again in the fact that we are gathered here to worship you and to be in your presence to give glory to your name and acknowledgement of your goodness and your mercy and your grace poured out abundantly on us in Jesus Christ. And we do thank you for the gift of fellowship we've already shared. How appropriate, how rich that we could share a meal together and just break bread with one another. And uh, Lord, we remember tonight how Jesus broke bread with his disciples on that night and how special it was to them, how powerful, how it has changed everything the things that happened that night and the next day and the next two days. And I just ask again that your spirit would come now and grab our hearts and our minds in a fresh way that we might see Jesus and might make place in our heart for him. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. A couple of scriptures. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. From Matthew 5, from Ecclesiastes. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. And then another verse from Ecclesiastes. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. It turns out that in God's providence and plan... Uh, there is an appropriate place for us for experiencing and even focusing on what mourning means. It's interesting, it's not a common theme for sermons. And to be honest, most pastors talk about wanting to be upbeat in their messages. It's actually perhaps more enjoyable for the speaker and more enjoyable for the listener. I don't know if we made a regular habit of talking about mourning that we draw bigger audiences here. I kind of doubt it. But over about a hundred times... In the NIV, at least, the word weep is used. 137 times the word mourn is used in scriptures. And partly it's because of the reality of the curse and how hard life really can be. And partly it's because of God's interaction with us. And not just our mourning about ourselves or our world, but even his mourning for us and our world. Well, uh, Jamie rightfully so pointed out the verse that this is uh, often a Monday, Thursday, is a takeoff on the command that they should love one another, and the Latin word was what they derived that expression from. Some of you might be interested to know also that there's a lot of thought given to what to do about the poor on Monday, Thursday. In England, the queen gives away money on this date. They have special services, and then they get a certain number of pensioners lined up, and they each get a red bag and a white bag with so many coins in it, Uh, symbolic of what her life is about, and they do as many pensioners as the queen is old. And so the treasury there is getting a little concerned because she's about 86 right now, and so they're wondering how this process is going to go. But all kinds of things have been mixed into this night, and for those of us that have religious experience, even coming to the Lord's table, thinking about the Last Supper, it's so easy to miss what it was like 
to be there that night for those disciples. So that's what I want to ask God to help us with. Take a look at that. We'll be looking again in the book of Mark, chapter 14. And I'll start with a picture that happened a few days before Monday, Thursday, in verse 3. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table of the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will have always with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. And so the disciples, they're on their way actually have been in Jerusalem already and they're back outside the town. They're having this dinner at this man's house and this woman pours this very expensive oiled perfume on the head of Jesus. And some wonder, was she actually anointing him as king as it happened a few days before when he came in on the donkey into Jerusalem and people were celebrating that their Messiah had come? Or was she fully aware, because Jesus had been talking openly about dying with his disciples, Did she know that? And what Jesus certainly took it as is this woman has taken everything she has, her riches, her every valuable she had was in that bottle of perfume. That was her bank account. And she broke it and poured it on him lavishly. And everybody was saying, that's a waste to love Jesus like that. And Jesus said, oh no. It is the right way for her to respond to me. And she's going to be known forever for what she did. And so that's a picture. But what do you think the disciples were thinking when this talk is going on? And Jesus is pointing out again, I'm getting ready for my burial. These are the last days. And so there was a heaviness on their hearts. And there was a concern and a personal fear about what was going to happen in Jerusalem. And that's part of the setting for coming to Monday, Thursday. That was the things that were happening leading up to this. So now we get again in chapter 14 to verse 16 to the next scene here. And other gospel accounts tell us that when they came to this place where they were going to have the Passover meal celebrated together, a place, again, that Jesus had told them exactly what they would find, just like when he defined how they'd find the donkey, he told them how he'd find this room all prepared. But the first thing that happened there was that Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Now, what mindset would that put you in? You know, Peter didn't like it. Peter felt ashamed. He didn't feel he was worthy of that. But that's the first thing that happens. And then um, this conversation takes place that we pick up on in verse 16. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. The Passover, the feast of the Jews that they had celebrated for 1,500 years. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said... I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who was eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. 
So here they are. They're now just a few days away from the end. Actually, a day away from the end. They're having the last meal, and it's the Passover, the thing the Jews love to celebrate. And usually it was a festive time. The family, an extended family, would march down to Jerusalem, and it would be a very special holiday occasion when they would remember all that God had done. But in this case, these guys are heavy-hearted. And Jesus has just washed their feet. And before they even partake of the meal, he says, by the way, one of you, one of you 12, one of you closest to me and close to each other, one of you is going to betray me. And this was really painful for them to hear. And it, in essence, turned this special holiday into a nightmare. What is happening? What is happening to us? What is happening to Jesus, our King and our Lord, the one we know is the Messiah? What is happening? And in essence, it turned into a time of self-examination. And each one, it says, of the 12 interacted with Jesus in a personal way. Jesus, it's not me, is it? Please, please say, it's not me. I'm not going to be the one to do it. Please. And Jesus didn't tell them which one it was. And so there was that whole weight on them. They didn't think it would be them. But then Jesus affirmed again in verse 20... It is one of the twelve. And so they had that heaviness that night. Can you believe it? One of our own is going to betray Jesus. It's horrible what he says is going to happen. It's horrible he's talking about dying. We tried to talk him out of it. He rebuked us. We didn't want to come to Jerusalem. He wanted to come. We're here with him. We decided to go even if we have to die. And now he has to tell us one of us is going to be the betrayer. How painful is that? And when we come to this whole subject of mourning... You know, we often think about the enemies or the things that are difficult that are exterior to us, far away from us, that just cause hardship to us. But the most painful things, the most painful sin, the most painful hurts come from those closest to us. We have the power to hurt each other more than anybody outside has the power to hurt us. And so the disciples were stricken. One of us. What a grievous thing. What a heavy thing. What a... What a situation to mourn. That this has to happen is one thing, but that it has to be one of us. Such a painful burden. And yet I would say and suggest to you that as we deal with suffering and struggles and difficulty and face things that are hard for us, it's often these same kind of things that come to us. Somebody close, somebody we know, someone is uh, betraying our cause, Someone that we hoped was standing with us is no longer standing with us. And it's a heavy time. It's an appropriate time to mourn. Well, after Jesus had expressed that and sort of set the tone for the evening, then he gets into one of the most amazing uh, turnarounds that ever happened in the history of an event. Passover had been celebrated 1,500 years since they were brought out of Egypt under the hand and guidance of Moses. And now listen to what happens here. Pick it up with verse um, 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks. So far, so good. They were used to people during the Passover meal taking the elements and explaining all the things that they meant and represented for coming out of Egypt. But something different happened this night. Something changed in this whole Passover experience. And these guys were probably just about half listening because of their grief and their sorrow and their fear and the fact that they kind of knew what they expected to have happen. But then Jesus said this. He broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, Take it. 
This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. They all drank from that cup of wine, as was the custom in the way they would share. Sometimes they would each have their own cup. Sometimes they would take a common cup. And when they took a common cup, it really demonstrated this incredible unity together. Even having a meal together meant that they were united and that they were for one another. But sharing a common cup meant we are in this together. But I'm telling you something that was one of the highest, probably the highest abominations for a Jew was to think about partaking of blood. You would never partake of blood. It was sacrosanct that you not touch blood from any of the sacrifices, from any of the things that you dealt with meat. You must do away with the blood because it was so symbolic and so powerfully used in the life of their nation. They never touched blood. And then Jesus said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And so what was happening amongst our group of disciples that night? Remember, just for a minute, what happened that they got started with the Passover. They were slaves and captives in Egypt. Their lives were a mess. They were being beaten and they had no control over their life. They could not even worship God as they wanted to. They couldn't raise their families as they wanted to. They could only do what the Pharaoh wanted them to do. And he was cruel and hard. And they cried out to God and God sent deliverance. And you remember the ten plagues and all the things that happened. And the Israelites were still trying to figure out themselves what God was up to. And then it came to that last plague. And the Wrath of God was being poured out because of the injustices to his people in, in, in Egypt. But the wrath of God was going to be poured out on every household, Jew and Egyptian. There were going to be no exception. At every household, someone was going to be dead that night because of the wrath of God. Unless, unless they believed in the promise of God that if they would take his instructions by faith, and sacrifice this lamb, this perfect lamb, this unblemished lamb, and take blood from that lamb and put it above the doorpost, then the wrath of God would pass over them and they would be delivered from God's wrath. And that's exactly what happened. And not only did it get them delivered from God's wrath that night, it got them delivered from slavery into the promised land and into a fellowship and a relationship with God that was new and fresh and powerful. Does that sound familiar? That's what happened in the Passover. And so for 1,500 years, their main holiday was celebrating the Passover. And then we find out in this situation, Jesus is shining light on the real truth of the Passover. What really was happening? Because you see, all along, it was always God's plan. Always. Before the foundations of the world, that Jesus would be the perfect lamb that would take away the sins of the world. And so that night, in their fear and in their consternation about who is going to be the traitor and who is going to betray Jesus, all of a sudden, in the midst of their special meal that they'd known since childhood, Jesus took the bread and said, I am the bread. He had already told them about the bread. They didn't really understand that. And he offered it as his broken body for them. And then he took that cup and said, this is my blood of the new covenant. Doing away with that old, that old is only a picture of the reality which is in your presence right now. You see, God had promised from Genesis 3 on that he was going to come back and redeem his creation. 
He had pictured what he was going to do in the whole nation of Israel. It's the most amazing story. There's nothing in literature like the wisdom and power of God to use a nation for that many years just to set the stage for Jesus to come. Nobody could dream this stuff up. Prophets spoke for hundreds of years and told all kinds of things that were going to happen. And they're celebrating it, but they're still trying to figure it out. And this night, Jesus says, I'm telling you what this was all about. When you see what my blood does, because my blood is the thing by your faith in my blood that will deliver you from God's wrath, ultimately and eternally. And I won't just deliver you from his wrath. I will take and make a new nation of you. God made a nation of Israel in Egypt and in the cross and in the shed blood of Christ. He makes a nation of those of us that have new life in Christ. The kingdom of God is here because of his work and his grace. And the disciples were just trying to catch up with that. As so often, we are just trying to understand the profound importance of what we do when we take these elements. So it had been promised, it had been pictured, and now Jesus in his hands with the bread and with the cup is presenting the ultimate lamb that would take away the sins of the world. It was an amazing night. It was something that obviously, profoundly, we keep remembering and experiencing. Like Israel kept remembering the Passover, we keep celebrating the Lord's provision for us in these elements. The Lord's provision in his blood and in his body. Well, that was still a a sobering thing. And you say, what's sobering about that? Well, in essence, in the brokenness of Christ and in the blood that was poured out, They knew and we need to know it was because of our sin. And in a sense, could this one, this king they loved so much, this one that they didn't want to die, they wanted him to rule. But he said, no, I must die for you. Do we have a sense of that when we partake of these elements? His death was necessary. There was no other way for us to redeem ourselves except for this beloved, perfect, sinless son of God to give his blood for us. Was if that night wasn't long enough, we find in verse 27, Peter has a little more to deal with related to Jesus. Verse 27, it says, You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And bold Peter declared, Even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Well, let's look over to the next place where this uh, comes in here for Peter. Peter is, uh, again, uh, there's some things that happen with the trials, and Peter's sneaking in there and watching. We pick this story up with verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You're also with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the words of Jesus, 
And actually, one of the other gospel writers tells us that he had eye contact with Jesus at this point. And uh, what Jesus had spoken to him, saying, Before the rooster crows twice, you'll disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. It was another time for mourning. And in our own experiences, Peter had to uh, feel that sense of disappointment in himself that he had disappointed his king. And he was so sure he would be so brave, but he had struggled and fell. And how many of us have repeated that story over and over? Made pledges to Christ. I'm not doing that again. I'm I'm just not going to go there anymore. My attitude has changed. My actions will change. And then we find that we experience sin again. And this is really important what we understand. There's an appropriate way to mourn for our sin, to be broken by our sin. And as we looked at in the series of Lent, God has given us some tools, confession and repentance, which is turning and going the other direction, so that we can understand the completeness of our forgiveness in Christ. So we don't mourn as if we're paying penance. Penance is a funny word, actually, because it's connected to the word repent, which is a good word, but it's become something that is works-oriented instead of grace-oriented. A lot of people think, if I've sinned, I've got to be angry at myself, and I've got to beat myself up and belittle myself and, and make myself miserable. And if I do that long enough, then maybe somehow I earn God's forgiveness. And I am not suggesting for one minute that that's appropriate. And there are actually people that go to even greater pains than that and do some really horrific things to hurt themselves, thinking somehow that's going to appease the wrath of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are forgiven completely from our sins, past, present, and future. Thank God that we are. But when we do sin, it's still appropriate to grieve and to acknowledge, God, I've sinned again. It reminds me again why you had to pay the price you did. I've failed myself and I've failed you because I wanted to please you and serve you and bring glory to your name. And I didn't want to be entrapped by this sin, which I see as of the enemy anyway. And so I mourn that loss, lost opportunity to obey. But I cling to the cross. I'm coming back to the cross because at the cross you paid for that sin. And I can't pay. I don't have to pay. And again, I agree with you about my sin. And I agree that your righteousness, the righteousness of Christ is mine because of Jesus. And so it's an appropriate thing to mourn, but it's not a works that we do to please God. Let me close with uh, one last way that it's appropriate for us to mourn. And these are verses from Luke chapter 13. Uh, Start with verse 34, and then I'll look at a couple of other verses. This was Jesus. Remember, he had been in Jerusalem, and those high priests and chief priests and the lawyers were giving him grief up and down. He had had very difficult times. He was battling with them. But the majority of people in Jerusalem, he knew, were basically just a bunch of lost sheep. And so this verse says to us, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. And so we see the heart of Jesus. Even though those people were so harsh to him, and he was going there so that they could kill him. He still longed in his heart to have them come. And then there's another verse in uh, Luke chapter 19, uh, verse 41 and 42. And this was close to the end here. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. 
And so Jesus himself, in the midst of all the suffering he'd done, and as focused as he was on going to die, going to the cross, he's still weeping for Jerusalem. And so I just want to suggest at the end of our time here how appropriate it is. There is a season for everything. There's a season for dancing. There's a season for celebrating. There's a season for weeping and a season for mourning. I encourage you to come tomorrow if you have the time. And we'll remember and reflect on those last hours of Christ and those last words of Christ. But I surely encourage you to come on Sunday when we'll have something to celebrate about the power of Christ released. But in this case, I just want to make a plea that we understand that Jesus calls us to mourn with him for others. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He was the rightful king and they were denying him his kingdom. Just playing into the hand of God just trumping what Satan wanted to do. But nonetheless, all those people, he mourned for them. And I suggest that we should ask God to give us his heart for lost people, for other people, so that we are touched by the injustices that happen. We can't listen to the news and end up weeping for every sad account we hear. But if we allow ourselves to get to a place that we're so callous that nothing touches us and we don't really care about anybody else, We are not letting God give us his heart for the way he sees the world. Uh, Sue and I went to a a film not too long ago. It was called Zero Dark Thirty. And uh, many of you maybe have seen that film or at least are aware of what it's about. It's about the uh, uh, exercise to kill Osama bin Laden. And it's a traumatic story and well acted. Uh, Many of you wouldn't like it probably because of how traumatic it is. But in essence... Uh, I can appreciate the seeking for justice. And I can appreciate this woman's um, angst because people she cared about got killed trying to accomplish this mission. It was and is war. I get that. And justice is an appropriate thing. And the military and the government have an appropriate responsibility in exercising justice and providing protection. I understand all of that. But what I was also aware of is as American films do... It kind of raises up in us that hatred, that passion that says, boy, don't I just hate those people. And that's tricky. My wife just recently finished reading a book called The Insanity of God. And in this book, which was written this this year, finished in January, it's about a guy that spent 25 years, in essence, behind closed curtains in communist countries and in a lot of Muslim countries where missionaries are not to go. And he has documented all these stories about the work of God and the work of grace with the people most hidden and most hardened to the gospel. And the people that are there with the love of Christ because of the love of Christ who have a heart for those people. And you can't go and share the love of Christ with those people and hate them. I'm telling you, it doesn't work. And so just to understand, what does it mean, God, for us to see people the way you see them. It's complicated, but it's important. It's really important. And for us, you know, we can, we can split over things a lot smaller than that. We can be angry and upset at people because their denominational difference is a bit different or maybe their theology is a bit different. We have so many ways we split. But can we ask God to give us that heart that weeps over Jerusalem, that weeps over those who close themselves off to the grace and mercy of Christ? Let's pray. Father, I do thank you again for your word, and I thank you especially for that incredible evening when those men gathered with Jesus, and in their fear and in their confusion, they let him love on them, and they grew in their love towards him. And I ask that you would continue that work as we gather now 
to partake in this same meal that they celebrated, celebrating the body and the blood of Christ. I ask that you would draw our hearts to our King. And I make that a prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.